Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. The moments, the memories. This is the Heroes of the 500 on 93 WIBC. He is sputtering slow and he hits the wall. He hits the wall coming out of four. This is Heroes of the 500, Breaking Barriers on 93 WIBC. I'm Stan Lear. Over the next hour, we'll look back at one of the most significant events in the more than 100-year history of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the 1977 Indianapolis 500. It turned out to be an historic month at the Brickyard, but the month of May 1977 started out on a somber note as the voice of the 500 for more than two decades was silenced. Now stay tuned for the greatest spectacle in racing. Sid Collins was an Indianapolis icon. Back in the 1950s, he hosted several programs at WIBC, including Captain Sid's Treasure Hunt and sold advertising for the station. He also worked on the Indianapolis 500 broadcast on the Mutual Radio Network, first as a turn announcer and then joining anchor Bill Slater in the Pagoda. When Mutual decided not to continue with their contract, it was Sid Collins who picked up the baton, and the Speedway Radio Network was born, with Collins handling the anchor duties for the first flag-to-flag broadcast in 1953. Hi there, sports fans. Your extra-friendly mobile gas dealer who does business under the sign of the Flying Red Horse invites you to a grandstand seat at America's greatest sporting event, the historic 500-mile Indianapolis race. For the next four hours, you'll hear an on-the-spot report of this dramatic race by Sid Collins, eminent Midwest sportscaster. After the creation of the worldwide radio network, Collins became known across the globe, even to a young man in England who followed the race on radio, Speedway historian Donald Davidson. Anyway, I knew who Sid Collins was, and I heard the voice, but that's not what got me interested. But... After a couple of years, and I knew now that I was, well, more than a couple of years, but when I knew that I was um, uh, going to make the trip, then I reached out to him by by writing a fan letter and explaining that I would be coming and had all this interest and wondered if I, you know, could I volunteer to be part of the broadcast as a spotter or a runner or something. And uh, so I, I didn't get a reply right away, so I did a follow-up letter. <laughs> and then uh, I got a response from him, and then there was a photo in there, 8 by 10 glossy, with him with a mic, and it was to my British fan, Donald, or something like that. But then when I showed up, and, and uh, you know, he, by no means did, did he invite me or did anybody else. I mean, I flat came 
And then when I showed up, finally, then all of these magic things happened. In 1976, following the shortest Indianapolis 500 on record, ended by rain after just 102 laps, the voice of the 500 closed the race broadcast with a poem and closing thought before signing off. But another icy Indiana winter will come and go, and before we know it, springtime returns, it will be May, and the roar of engines will once again breathe life into the lazy Hoosier sky and bring us back together. And God willing, I'll be here to greet you for this annual reunion through our mutual love of auto racing and the Indianapolis 500. And now this final thought for our winner. Enthusiasm with wisdom will carry a man further than any amount of intellect without it. The men who have most powerfully influenced the world have not been so much men of genius as they have been men of strong conviction with an enduring capacity for work coupled with enthusiasm and determination. Johnny Rutherford showed these qualities today in becoming victorious over the Indianapolis 500. So until next May, this is Sid Collins, the voice of the 500, wishing you good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where in the world you are right now. We're here at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway at the crossroads of America. Goodbye. But few knew that would be goodbye. Collins hadn't been feeling well at the end of 1976 and start of 1977 and his friends, worried about his health, reached out to him. Donald Davidson. Oh, it, it's, it's sort of personal, but he said, um, I, I, the, the last time I saw him, I had called up, and he didn't want to see me. And I said, well, we're really concerned about you. And I talked to him for a few minutes, and he said, I don't want to see anybody right now. And within two, three, four minutes, he said, uh, do you know where such and such a thing is on, on uh, uh, Keystone Avenue? Yeah, yeah. Meet me there in 20 minutes. So I went over, and, uh, and he, he had not shaved, which was a real surprise, but he was all dressed up, and he, clearly he'd been crying. And uh, so... I, I noted that. I said, but Sid, you know, you know, you took the trouble to put on a tie. And he said, well, that's me. And he said, that's how I'll always be. And, and I think he just couldn't bear the thought of not being able to care for himself and that people would have to dress him and wash him and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it, it's, it, it, I don't know, it's sort of, something probably you really shouldn't talk about because he was a, a very public person but also very private and uh, he was big about the image and referred to himself in third person a lot and uh, and so you know all these years later i guess it's okay to talk about it but i wouldn't have done it at the time on may 2nd the shocking news came that sid collins an extremely proud man unable to envision a future where he could not care for himself, had taken his own life. I remember specifically, I got a call. Uh, it was the day before the track opened, May the 2nd. Uh, and I got a call from Jed Duval. And uh, he said uh, at, at WIBC, and it probably was about 10.30 or something like that. And he said... Uh, I guess you heard about Sid. I said, no, what about Sid? And he said, well, he died this morning. And um, 
I, I, I don't know that I was surprised because uh, he, we, we knew he was very despondent over his condition and what his future might be. And uh, some of us had spent time with him. And uh, I had just a few days before that. And he was pretty distraught. But you thought that he would pull through it. It had been widely known that Sid had tabbed another WIBC employee, Paul Page, to be his successor in waiting. But nobody expected Page would need to be in the anchor chair for 1977. He was my mentor. Uh, he started several years. Well, I, he brought me onto the network in 1974. And in 75 and 76, he spent a lot of time with me both uh, here at the radio station, but also at, uh, at the track when we were doing reports and qualifying days, uh, grooming me, teaching me how to interview, hopefully how to call a race, what things were important, how you put things together. And so, yeah, he set me up for this, and it was his uh, specific request that I be the su successor. Sid Collins, the voice of the 500 for almost 30 years, is not here with us today. But I'm sure in spirit he is cheering for all this broadcast crew. He was that type of man. He was a perfectionist. If he accepted a job to do, the job was well done. May 2nd, Sid Collins passed away. He had contracted ALS, the Lou Gehrig disease. We'll miss Sid Collins. He was our friend, but he was a friend of yours too. Sid was a man of great ability, articulate, and a gentleman through and through. But Sid Collins knew that no man is indispensable and will be cheering all of us on to do a good job like he always wanted us to do. And now here is Sid's good friend, race driver, broadcaster, and a well-qualified man in our new voice of the 500, Paul Page. Thank you very much, Jim Shelton, and greetings from Indianapolis. This broadcast crew deeply feels the loss of our leader, Sid Collins, and we are here today going to perform in the way that he would have wanted us to the way that he taught all of us for many, many years. We hope that you will join with us in dedicating this 61st running of the 500-mile race to Sid Collins. Page knew he had huge shoes to fill on race day. Sid was an incredible man. He was an absolute perfectionist, uh, which is why he was so successful. There were, was no detail left undone in Sid's life. And uh, Sid was never married. He was married to the Speedway, married to broadcasting, and he dedicated himself totally to that. And I think that uh, that that dedication, almost more than anything else, shines through when I think of Sid. Page and his crew made one immediate change to the broadcast, where Sid Collins had acted more in a role of a master of ceremonies as chief announcer. Page wanted more play-by-play -play of the greatest spectacle in racing. Uh, Sid was working with a system and a process that was developed starting back in 1952. And uh, at one time, you have, to, you have to put this into context, at one time it was difficult just to get an announcer's cable out from one of the turns to master control. And the technology alone in 1952 and the 50s required contributions from every radio station in town. There was no satellite 
It was AT&T long lines. It was all manually done, and in fact, they were hooking stations on the morning of the race. Well, now we have satellite. We have this improving technology. We didn't have satellite in 77 when I took over, but we had technology that allowed us to move out of the, the system, which was the turn reporter called the producer and said, I have an accident here. The producer, Jack Morrill, then wrote turn one accident on a card and handed it to Sid. Sid would say, we see the yellow flag out, we're going out, and it was all past tense. I instead uh, developed a system where each announcer could talk directly into my right ear uh, off the air. And by the same token, I had a button that I could push and I could talk to all the announcers at once. And that system put us in real time. And I just wanted to do it because the race was now moving so fast. Uh, there were a number of things that I felt I had to address to bring it into that real-time mode, and I thought it was important to do. Forty years later, the current voice of the 500, Mark Janes, says Collins' impact is still being felt today. And I'm not of the opinion that history began the day that I was born or the history of the IMS Radio Network began the day that I arrived. Um, I've always had respect for the history and tradition, and because of that, I, I think of Sid often. And um, I, I thought, boy, where would any of us be right now with, with, without him? Um, uh, and, and, you know, the dream that he allowed to develop in me at a very young age uh, that I was able to achieve. Um, I'll be eternally grateful to Sid Collins. It's a huge disappointment to me that I, I never got to meet him and I never got to meet Lou Palmer. Uh, but I, I did meet the late Ron Carroll and, and the late Doug Zink. Um, Gary Lee took me from a broadcaster to a motorsports broadcaster. Uh, Darrell Weibel, and, and the list goes on and on. Chuck Marlowe, Howdy Bell. all. The whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Those guys who work with Sid and the guys we have now like Paul and Bake and, and, and people like that. So I, I have a pretty good sense in Donald, of course, as to what it was like to work uh, for Sid um, and, uh, and, 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 and what he meant to each and every one of them because, uh, you know, Bake loves to tell the story about him and Paul joining the network the same year. And after Sid had invited them both, they were high-fiving each other in the parking lot of the radio station, uh, this station, in fact, and uh, WIBC. And, and, and you know, um, I, I, I think if, if you have any, appreci any appreciation at all, regardless of what your role is, be it a, an engineer or a producer or a pit reporter or, or an anchor or a co-anchor or whatever, uh, I, I I think if your thoughts don't tend to don't tend to turn to Sid Collins a, a few times throughout the course of the year, um, then then I don't know that this is a, a, a place that you ever you get to to begin with. Donald Davidson, who has enhanced the joy of the Indianapolis 500 for countless fans around the world, says he owes it all to Collins. Uh, I came back the next year, and then I was uh, part of the uh, the, the Bruce State broadcast. And I had emigrated. I got a job at the United States Auto Club. And then the following year, I did a, a, a very short program, which was the forerunner of what became the talk of Gasoline Alley. So I owe Sid Collins a, a huge deal of gratitude. And in fact, uh, Henry Banks, who hired me at USAC, and Sid 
I think of the people outside of my family. Those are the two people to whom I owe the most. And so, uh, and I, I didn't think to do this until fairly recent years, but now, at least once on race day, I try to sleep slip in. Thank you, Sid. Coming up next, Paul Day sees a record run for 200. This is Heroes of the 500 Breaking Barriers on 93 WIBC. This is Heroes of the 500 Breaking Barriers on 93 WIBC. The 1977 Indianapolis 500 entry list was a who's who of the sport at the time. 85 cars were entered, and of those, 68 were actually brought to the track. During the month of May, there were 55 drivers who took practice laps at one time or another. 42 had been in the race before, with 13 rookies. But if you look at those who tried to qualify for the first time in 1977, there are some interesting stories. For example, a father and son tried to qualify for the same Indianapolis 500 for the first time, as Jim and James McElreath were both entered. Speedway historian Donald Davidson. That definitely, that's a trivia uh, question that you can win a lot of bets with, uh, because it wasn't just like he was entered and, and turned down. I mean, he's actually on the, the track practicing, and, and Jimmy was running back and forth, uh, you know, involved with the team for whom he was driving, and then running over to help his son because that was the family-owned car. James McElreath's qualifying time wasn't fast enough to make the 500, and sadly, he wouldn't get another chance as the talented newcomer lost his life in a sprint car crash at Winchester later that year. Another rookie on the entry list in 1977 was Formula One star Clay Regazzoni, who was a star with Ferrari in the early 1970s, finishing second in the World Championship in 1974. By 77, the Swiss star had moved to the Ensign team, and in a scenario similar to this year's with Fernando Alonso, he actually left his ride at the Monaco Grand Prix to qualify his car at the 500. Regazzoni had a hard crash in practice, and although he made the race, he dropped out after just 25 laps, ending up 30th in his only Indianapolis 500. Another rookie on the entry list got more attention for his shocking pink eagle he was driving than anything else. Rick Mears was a virtual unknown to most fans in 1977. He had finished in the top 10 in his first three IndyCar races in 1976, including the Ontario 500. But most fans only knew him as the guy driving the pink number 90 for Art Sugai. In fact, it was a two-car team. And uh, so there was a fellow there that was was doing PR, and he was the one that introduced me to Rick Mears. Well, of course, I'd heard of him, but uh, he he just was pleasant but didn't say anything. I mean, he just sort of kind of grinned. But he had the, the you know, the floppy uh, Jan Opperman hat and, and long hair and, and a moustache, and, and uh, uh, I, I didn't really think too much about it. It was just sort of, just for a few seconds, I just met him and that was it. No, I never imagined that uh, within a couple of years he'd win the race. <laughs> no, I had no idea. I mean, I, I never I never dreamed Indy was way out of my league. Indy cars were way out of my league, period. And uh, I never even, you never even thought about getting into an Indy car until about six months before it actually happened. That, that was how far out of my league I thought it was, you know. So, in that respect, it's a fairy tale story, and, and, and maybe that's one of the reasons I appreciate it as much as I do. But um, 
never had any idea that, that you know, that I never dreamed of making a living at racing, period. You know, I just thought it was a hobby that we were going to do for family recreation on the weekends. So it's just, it's incredible. I don't know how to put it into words, really, but I, but I really had no idea that, that it would be anything near what it's been. The month of May actually opened on the 7th that year, and a rookie had the fastest speed of the day, Janet Guthrie. We'll have more on her historic effort in our next segment. Guthrie hit 185 miles an hour in opening day, but soon another number was on everyone's mind, 200. The 200-mile-an-hour barrier had actually been hit by veteran driver Jerry Grant at Ontario Motor Speedway in 1972, but no driver had topped the magic number at the Brickyard until Mario Andretti did it in practice on May 11th. Speedway historian Donald Davidson. Mario Andretti and A.J. Foyt, within 30 minutes of each other, both did an unofficial 200, I forget, which was the first. And then shortly thereafter, Johnny Rutherford, got one. But practice speeds aren't counted in the official Speedway records, so the 200-mile-an-hour mark would have to fall during qualifications. And while it was expected either Andretti or Foyt would pull it off, neither came close. But at 11.51 a.m. on May 14, 1977, a driver who would earn the nickname the Gas Man would start his qualifying run, Tom Sneva. There's always going to be new track records and people are going to go faster and faster, but to be the first person to run the 200 mile, that magic mark, uh, you know, that's something they can't take away from you. Sneva set new one and four lap records in his Penske Racing McLaren, becoming the first driver to top 200 miles an hour on an official lap at the corner of 16th and Georgetown. Seven years later, Sneva would win the pole again, becoming the first driver to qualify above 210 miles an hour, solidifying his reputation as the gas man. You know, how many drivers have had four top three finishes? But you're right. I, and, and it's interesting. When you give a driver's name, what's the first thing that you think of? So you're absolutely right. Um, you think of Sneaver as qualifying on pole day. Coming up next, a talented driver breaks through one of the biggest glass ceilings in sports. Car number 27, a rookie, the first woman in a 500-mile race, Janet Guthrie from New York City, the Bryant Heating and Cooling Special. This is Heroes of the 500 Breaking Barriers on 93 WIBC. This is Heroes of the 500 Breaking Barriers on 93 WIBC. For decades, women weren't even allowed in the pits or gasoline alley. That finally changed in 1971 when Indianapolis News reporter Betty Cadu and fellow writer Mary McCloskey became the first women granted a coveted silver badge from the track. But no woman came to the brickyard as a driver in the month of May until Janet Guthrie entered the Indianapolis 500 in 1976. Guthrie was a pilot with an engineering background who worked on a predecessor to the Apollo Moon Project. Guthrie even had designs on going into space herself. She applied for the first scientist astronaut program and got through the first round of eliminations. But her interests slowly changed, and soon Guthrie became enamored with sports car racing. By 1972, Guthrie was racing on a full-time basis with success, including two class wins at the prestigious 12 Hours of Sebring. Guthrie had no plans to leave the sports car world until she linked up with car owner Rolla Volstead. Well, I, I had been competing in sports cars for 13 years, and so I had a reputation. 
I and um, Rella Volstead, one of the last of the independent, low-budget team owners, had always been an innovator, and it crossed his mind he'd like to be the first team owner to bring a woman to Indianapolis. And since there weren't any women on the ovals, he asked his sports car racing friends and kept getting my name and called me up. Guthrie failed to qualify her first time at the Speedway in 1976 due to a variety of mechanical failures, and that didn't help quiet the grumbling from those who weren't ready to see a woman behind the wheel at the brickyard. In several interviews, Guthrie said that the catcalls and rude behavior she faced didn't bother her, but that wasn't the whole story. Speedway historian Donald Davidson. She'd gone through a lot during the month. They blew a lot of engines, but she was doing interviews. She was very eloquent, and uh, she did take abuse. I mean, some fans didn't really want her there for whatever reason. She would hear comments as she was coming through the uh, gasoline alley, and it must have been very, very difficult for her. By the time the Speedway opened for practice in 1977, Guthrie had already made 10 starts in NASCAR. She would eventually run 33 times in the stock car series with a top finish of sixth at the tough bull ring at Bristol. Any racing driver of that era would give their eye teeth for a chance to even make a qualifying attempt at Indianapolis for the 500. And that was my perspective. A racing driver was what I was through and through and had been for many years. Uh, so the, the uproar quite astonished me, really. Guthrie didn't qualify on the first three days of time trials of 1977, and some believed her dream was over. Instead, she put the Bryant Heating and Cooling Special on the grid on bump day, May 22, 1977, with a four-lap average of 188.403 miles per hour. Guthrie ran faster on each of her four qualifying cars in becoming the first female driver to qualify for the 500. Guthrie would start 28th on the grid, but she actually posted the 18th quickest qualifying speed of the month. I, I, I think any driver of that era would tell you that the moment they first put a car in the field for Indianapolis with a, a time fast enough to be perfectly secure. I mean, back then there were 90 cars entered and only the fastest 33 would start. That's a moment you'll never forget. Guthrie had finally proved the doubters wrong and led to a new command prior to the start of the 1977 Indianapolis 500. In company with the first lady ever to qualify at Indianapolis, gentlemen, start your rhythm. Guthrie lasted just 27 laps in car 27 due to an engine problem. But she made three Indianapolis 500 starts in her career. In 1978, she came home ninth. The following year, she had her best finish in an Indy car in what would turn out to be her final race in the series, taking fifth at Milwaukee. She was very, very intelligent and uh, very, very well-spoken. And I, I came across as, as, a, as an East Coast Ivy Leaguer, although she was actually from Iowa, but, you know, spent a time in New York and, and uh, Florida. But I, I know that there, there were some people, sadly, um, there were some people that were not happy about being her being there. I think that changed even after, she, you know, the first year when she didn't even make it. I think she sort of turned some heads. And then I think that maybe in, in trying to portray the, the, the best that she could, 
she was probably maybe a little too articulate. And uh, I, I don't want that to come out wrong, but I thought that, that she w- was speaking like a professor at times. And I and some people evidently were, were bothered by that. And I thought if she probably was a little more of a, you know, uh, more, more plain spoken, she might have been uh, perceived differently. But uh, anyway, th- then next year she comes back and finishes ninth. So she made the top 10 of the Indianapolis 500. And how many people, how many, uh, several hundred probably drove in the race and never made the top 10? She did. Guthrie continues to be an inspiration for the way she handled the adversity she faced, paving the way for several female stars to follow her, including 1992 Indianapolis 500 Rookie of the Year, Lynn St. James. And I always said I was glad I wasn't the first because they take all the arrows in the back. But um, that you forget that just the talent and the, and the you know the, the ability and the accomplishments that she's had. In 2020, in recognition of her efforts to pave the way for generations of drivers to come. Guthrie became the first female racer inducted into the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Hall of Fame, joining NASCAR legend Dale Earnhardt in his star-studded class. Coming up next, two titans of the sport battle for the BorgWarner Trophy, but one of them has his eye on history. A.J. Foyt down the main straightaway. The checkered flag is out. A.J.'s hand in the air. He is the winner. A.J. Foyt at Indianapolis has won his fourth 500-mile race. This is Heroes of the 500 on 93 WIBC. Direct from the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the 1977 500-mile race. Brought to you by STP, fine products for folks who know how to take care of a car. This is Heroes of the 500 Breaking Barriers on 93 WIBC. May 29, 1977, dawned with several contenders for the crown. Track record holder Tom Sneva was joined in the front row by the brothers Unser, Bobby and Al. The second row had plenty of power as well, with A.J. Foyt on the inside, flanked by former winners Gordon Johncock and Mario Andretti. Although he wasn't one of the biggest stories of the month, when the green flag dropped, Al Unser showed why he's one of the best in Brickyard history. Unser led the first 17 laps, but they would be the only laps he would be at the front all day. Unser finished a solid third, one of 11 times he finished in the top three at the Brickyard. Another contender fell by the wayside early. Defending champion Johnny Rutherford became the answer to an unfortunate trivia question when he dropped out first. From 1974 to 1977, Rutherford's finishing positions were first, second, first, 
and last. Let's go to turn two and Howdy Bell. Thank you, Paul. Coming through the second turn, Johnny Rutherford in car number two was not at speed. He had dropped down below the yellow line. You should be able to see him shortly. Back to Paul. We'll watch then for Johnny Rutherford. He had started the middle of the sixth row after 10 laps. He was in eighth position after starting 17th. A.J. Foyt grabbed the lead on lap 27 and held the top spot until lap 51. But the dominant car... Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. On this day would come from the powerful Patrick Racing Team. At the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the green light is on. They are racing. Gordon Johncock leads this race. A.J. Foyt, about a quarter of a lap behind him. Tom Sneva is in third position. After leading briefly for four laps, Gordon Johncock took his place at the front. He led all but five laps from the 52nd until the 179th. Gordon Johncock continues to be our leader. Now, Gordon Johncock can often be a very misunderstood racing driver. He seems to be somewhat arrogant. The arrogance is mistaken. It is truly shyness. You'll find when you know Gordon Johncock, he is one of the most compassionate men that's here at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. A very compassionate driver. Shyness, unfortunately, overcoming. But on the race course, he is not shy. He is leading a 500-mile race, and he has won one here in 1973. Though Gordon Johncock probably feels very strongly about winning this race, not just for the fame, the glory, and the money of the moment, but to prove that he can win at a full 500 miles, not a rain-shortened race. But what A.J. Foyt, running second at the time, knew and did not know about Gordon Johncock would prove vital to the outcome of the 1977 Indianapolis 500. What Foyt didn't know is that Johncock was suffering from dehydration and heat exhaustion in the final half of the race, so much so that his crew was actually dousing him with water on his pit stops. Let's go to turn four and Jim Shelton. Hey, John Cuck almost lost it over in three. It looked like somebody dropped some oil over there. He went just a little sideways and uh, recovered. He's coming into the pits right now, Paul. Let's go down to the pits then. Here is Chuck Marlowe. I'm waiting right here for him. He rolls in right in front of me. They're going to the left rear. They're going to change the left front, too. Off comes the left rear. It's blistering hot. The tire is almost ready to explode. A big chunk out of the rear of the tire. They're setting it in on the right side. He must have run over some debris. Locking it in. The hubs are back on. The jack is down. The fuel is in. John Cox still taking time. Now roars away from the line. And back to you, Paul. What Foyt was aware of was that he was catching John Cock far faster than he expected. John Cock's chief mechanic was the great George Bignotti, whom Foyt had teamed with to be an almost unbeatable combination in the early to mid-1960s. Foyt knew what to expect from one of Bignotti's cars when it was out front, and late in the race, when he wasn't seeing it, the tough Texan knew the race was coming back to him. Well, that's quite true, and the only thing I can say about that, you know, I run out of fuel, and I got about like 32 seconds down. When you, when you had to yell it back then, you had to remain your distance. You wasn't allowed to close up. And then Jack Zorn, my chief mechanic, he still works with me on my racing at the home shop. He's been with me coming May 50 years, and like he said, we could turn up the boost if you wanted to, and he said, if you turn up the boost, I checked him about almost two seconds a lap. I said, no. I still haven't turned it up. And I said, well, they'll let me get within about 10 seconds of them, and then they're going to they're gonna go for broke. And uh, I didn't know it, and I, it went 10, 9, 8. Jack said, have you turned it up? 
I said, no. I said, they got to be in trouble, you know. <laughs> I knew Big Naughty wasn't going to let me get, in, you know, closing distance of him. Because I work with him, and he knows how I like the race. I'd go for broke. He knew that. So he wasn't going to let me get close to Gordy. But I didn't know. They'd already turned their boost up, and that's the reason they broke their motor. But I never had to turn mine up. Foyt had cut John Cox's lead to 10 seconds on lap 184 when it all went up in smoke for the Michigan standout. So the chase is on, but Gordon Johncock has pulled over to the left side of the straightaway. He appears to be slowing. He has cut his car in off of the apron at the south end of the main straightaway. A.J. Foyt is now our leader. There is apparently something wrong in Gordon Johncock's car. We see the... um, we see Gordon Johncock climbing out of his machine at the moment on the grass that used to be Victory Lane here at Indianapolis. It is not Victory Lane for Gordon Johncock. Johncock climbed out of the car and cooled off in the creek in turn one. Foyt cruised toward history. A.J. Foyt approaching his fourth win at Indianapolis. It given to him when Gordon Johncock's engine failed just several laps ago. The white flag is waved for A.J. Foyt. Here is Ron Carroll. All right, Paul, thank you. We have him in the view, and hey, this is going to be the first guy to win over a million dollars at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway with this fourth win. He's over in turn two. How did Bell pick him up? Riding smoothly around the line, drifts back out to the wall, up the back stretch to Darrell Weibel. From the dusty tracks of Texas, the Racing's Hall of Fame, and there goes Foyt toward turn three, Doug Zink. And the crowd on its feet is A.J. Foyt. They're waving at him, waving him on through turn number three, off of three, into the short shoot. Here's Jim Shelton. Hey, the crowd is up there cheering, as you can hear in the background. Not only the eyes of Texas, but the eyes of the world are on this great man. And now to call the checkered flag, our chief announcer, who did call a great race today, Paul Page. A.J. Foyt down the main straightaway. The checkered flag is out. A.J.'s hand in the air. He is the winner. A.J. Foyt at Indianapolis has won his fourth. 500-mile race. A.J. Foyt had waited 10 years to become the first four-time winner of the Indianapolis 500, and he seized the moment and made it even more special, inviting Speedway owner Tony Hallman to ride on the back of the pace car for the victory lap. The winner of the race, A.J. Foyt, is now seated in the back of the Oldsmobile pace car. Seated alongside him is the Speedway owner, Tony Holman, who started all of this here today with his command to start the engines. And the crowd is on their feet. They are applauding and cheering for A.J. Foyt. Well, it's tried true. They give me kind of a place to live. And, you know, every time I was ever hurt, Mr. Holman, Joe Cofier, you know, his assistant, was always there. And, I said, I'm going to be okay even when I got hurt at Daytona that time. They, some of the first ones at the hospital, then the newspapers always trying to tell Mr. Holman, who's your favorite driver? And he'd say, they're all my favorite. And the next day or so, he'd come around, put his arm around and said, you know my favorite driver. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was nice. And it gave me such a thrill to have him. I mean, my wife was there too, but she didn't ride around. It gave me such a thrill for him and I to ride around and be the first four-time winner. You know, like I said, it could be seven, eight-time winners now with all the development in the cars. But back then, it was hard to keep one twice, two or three times. But that gave me such a great, great thrill. Speedway historian Donald Davidson calls that scene one of the most memorable in the history of the Brickyard. It was just a fantastic day, a fantastic year uh, with, with the 200-mile-an-hour lap and, and uh, 
I know Janet Guthrie uh, breaking a barrier and, and, and so many other things that happened. But just the conclusion and, uh, there were, you know, the weather was beautiful and, and uh, everybody was euphoric. And you just have to think that's one of the great moments ever. And uh, when you are making up your list of, you know, the most iconic, most important people in the history of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway... Foyt and Tony Holman, they've got to be in your top six or seven. Otherwise, I think you got it wrong. (laughs) Thank you for joining us for Heroes of the 500 on 93 WIBC. I'm Stan Lear.